0: Amen. Thank you, guys. Good seeing you this morning. Whether you're here in person worshiping with us or online, let me just uh, say, along with Josh, welcome uh, to you. We're glad that you're a part of our worship experience this morning. We'd love to be able to uh, have a conversation with you if you're a guest today. So we do hope that you would take the time during the course of the service or during the week at some point to just text FL respond to the number 833-571-3475. And it's just our opportunity to be able to have uh, conversation with you because it is our belief that uh, uh, during the course of a service that uh, God speaks to our hearts in in different ways and uh, challenges us and stretches us in our faith journey, and that during the course of a service uh, that some may actually be called to the life of faith to following after Christ. Maybe that's something you have been thinking about, have been curious about about what it is to be a follower of Christ, and we would love to be able to talk with you about that and. Uh, share with you about that, Uh, or others who already know Christ as Savior, to become a part of a community of faith, a local church, and how that's done and what that's looked like. Because faith in the New Testament, well, really in the entirety of Scripture, the people of God have always uh, been a, a people of community always gathering together with a local community of faith, never in isolation. There's no New Testament model for a Lone Ranger kind of faith. It has always lived in the context of a church family and family being the prevalent metaphor for the people of God in both the Old and the New Testament. So we'd love to be able to dialogue with you about that. If you're a first-time visitor or worshiping with us for the first time, uh, you catch us in the midst of a, a series through the book of Romans. And this morning we pick up uh, where we left off. We're going to uh, pick up in Romans chapter 9 and verse 30, and we will go through the entirety of, of chapter 10 and answer the question this morning of why on mission. That's a language and a rhetoric that we use quite a bit around here about being a people on mission. And the hardest thing for any organization to accomplish, any organization, The most difficult, most challenging thing to accomplish is your mission, your task. Uh, Every organization is birthed by a singular task. There is something that gives birth. There is some task. There is some mission that gives birth to every every organization. But what happens as organizations grow uh, and as it becomes more and more populated with people in the growth of that organization, Uh, then the mission and the task can soon become clouded by a variety of different kinds of concerns that can actually take prevalence and preference over the mission and the task of the organization. Nowhere is that more readily seen than, than in the church if i was to ask any of you if i were to pass out a piece of paper for uh, every person in attendance this morning and say what do you think the primary concern of the church should be i would probably have in return as many as a, as many opinions as i did pieces of paper handed out and there are those who would say you know this 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 needs to be the number one concern of the church And I would be shocked if anyone actually represented in their expression of what the church should be concerned about. I would be shocked if it actually reflected the mission of the church. You see what happens with the passage of time. When we lose of what our mission is about, what our purpose is, what is the very purpose of our existence. This is for any organization. Then what happens when we have lost that singular-minded focus about what our task, what is our mission, what is our purpose, then everything tends towards self, self-expression. Everything tends tends towards that which that which is exclusive the organizations become uh, become insular in nature they become uh, concerned with safety security they they become concerned with maintaining status quo and that was the problem of israel israel turned insular Insular uh, Israel, chosen by by God, elected by God, chosen from the nations of the world, not because they were more, uh, not because they were better, not because they were uh, more moral than any of the other nations of the world, but God chose them, as we see in Isaiah chapter forty-two and verse six, and again in chapter forty-nine and verse six. Luke would even allude to this in in the book of Acts in chapter thirteen and verse forty-seven. The reason that God elected Israel from the nations of of the world is that they might be a light under the world, but what happened? They became exclusive, they became insular. they became more concerned about themselves than they did becoming a light to the world. What happened to Israel happens to the church. We allow myriad concerns. To override the mission the one reason the church of the Lord Jesus Christ was established was that we might perpetuate what it is to be the people of God a unique distinctive people in the world to be a light under the world that others might be drawn to Christ We are meant to be a people on mission in the world. We are meant to be a people mobilized like an army to be an offensive, missional gospel presence in our respective worlds. So ultimately, the ability of any organization business, church, team it doesn't matter. Ultimately, the ability to stay on task, to stay on mission as an organization comes down to leadership. It comes down to a tough-minded leadership. Now, by tough-minded, by tough leadership, I don't mean domination, I don't mean physical prowess. When I talk about tough-minded leadership, I mean that in the midst and in the context of myriad voices that inundate you, myriad opinions and concerns about what should be the focal point, a tough-minded leader has the ability to stay focused on the call, on the mission, on the task. This is why Paul would write to Timothy. Timothy, we understand, was a young man that was under the ministry of Paul, was called in, into pastoral ministry and was timid by nature. And, uh, but listen to what Paul wrote in this letter, his first letter to, to Timothy regarding his leadership, his preaching, and his teaching. He said, the elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially, of the, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, Those that are going to proclaim the word of God with truth and clarity in an uncompromising way. Because in the second letter, Paul says this. This is what's going to happen. For the time will come, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, for the time will come when they will not tolerate, they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled that is, entertained, wanting to be accommodated, wanting to hear what they want to hear. They will accumulate for themselves, not seeking after the one called by God. But let's find our teacher, let's find our preacher, let's let's find that one. They accumulate to themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And that's why I have an appreciation for Paul, especially as we come always for Paul, but especially as we come to Romans chapter nine, chapter 10 and 11, where some have accused Paul of muddying up the waters. You know that Paul's taken a book that was easily understandable up to this point and now he has muddied the waters with, with all of this talk that we don't understand using some 40 Old Testament references and, and, and most are illiterate when it comes to the Old Testament today. Paul writes from a presupposition that, that people that he's writing to are familiar with, with the Old Testament. And so Paul is unwavering. What I appreciate Paul is that he is not, in fact, muddying the waters, but he is giving a, a clear enunciation of the redemptive purposes of God in Christ Jesus, that Israel was called by God. Don't think that God has somehow compromised, negated the promises that were made to Israel, but that God has fulfilled the promises that were made to Israel regarding his redemptive purposes, the covenant justice that that has been now fulfilled, the promise that was made to Abraham has now been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And these, these redemptive purposes are now being fulfilled in everyone. Jew, Gentile, Greek alike, who believe in Christ Jesus. And it is this message that we are called to hold forth. Paul is not muddying the waters. He is focusing in on what God has done through Christ Jesus. I was reading an account this past week when talking about understanding mission and task of every organization. It certainly has application to the military. I was reading an account this week of of a military officer, a Marine officer, a young officer, who said he thought he understood leadership. And he said, the kind of leader that I wanted to be as I wanted to be popular among my men and he said, if I, if I really wanted them to follow me, I knew that they needed to like me. I needed to be popular. And I made, and so I made, I made decisions that were popular. I told those under me, you, you take Friday afternoon off. We're going to get off early. He said, when we were in cold weather and we were out in the field doing man- maneuvers, I saw to it that, that uh, hot coffee and soup was delivered to my men out, out in the field. I made popular decision after popular decision so that my men would like me. He said, I thought that was effective leadership until the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And he said, I had never seen such utter chaos and confusion. And he said, it dawned upon me in that moment that I had failed my men. I had failed to give to them in my leadership, I had failed to give to them the very thing that they needed to deal with the chaos and the stress of the overwhelming circumstances in which we found ourselves. And so while there is a very real a very real temptation for Paul to change up this gospel to accommodate the mass of the Jews, because Paul he he has the realization that, that the Jewish people in mass have rejected this Messiah. They have rejected the notion of what God has done, God has accomplished through Christ Jesus. And it would have been very easy for Paul for the sake of popularity among his own kinsmen to tell them, yeah, you're on the right path. You continue to circumcise your children. You continue, you continue to just follow the law and to pursue the law. And you'll just, you'll be fine with God. But as Paul continues to speak with clarity, this gospel, this unwavering gospel, that redemption, that salvation is by faith alone in Christ Jesus, nothing but the grace and the mercies of God. I notice in my reading of this, he spells out for us today why we as his people, my newly defined Israel, why we are on mission, If we pick up here in chapter nine and verse 30, we see very clearly that you and I as the church, as the people of God, the called out ones, to be a people on mission, to be a missional presence, an offensive movement in this world, mobilized for service, that others might be drawn to the Lord. What we see in these introductory verses is is that you and I are on mission because we are the correction we are the correction. We are the correction of what it is to be right with God. In other words, in our world today there's all kinds of notions of what it is to be right with God. You and I are the correction of all those false notions of what it is to be right with God. Paul says in verse 30, what shall we say then? This is the sixth and final time Paul asks this question. You go all the way back to chapter four. This is that where it was first asked, where he first asked this question. This is the sixth and final time he poses this rhetorical question. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, but the righteousness that is by faith. However, Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not Arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though they could by works, but as though they could by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, and he does kind of a compilation here of Isaiah 28:16 and Isaiah 8:14. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul is reminding Israel, he is reminding the nation of Israel of what God has done in your very midst. On the mountain of God in Zion, this wasn't something that was hidden from you. This wasn't something that was obscure. The same way you and I are without excuse, you and I take for granted the preaching of the gospel, what, what we have access to in the hearing of the word of God. Paul is saying the same thing to the nation of, of Israel, his kinsmen a people that he loves, that we, as we will see in verse 10, as we have already seen back in chapter nine in those first few, cha- in those first few verses. The stumbling stone that, that you have stumbled over was right there in your very midst in Zion. This wasn't something that that was obscure. In fact, it was was something that was so obvious in your midst. You You have had to make a cognitive choice. You have made a deliberate and intentional choice to reject that which God has set in front of you as being the fullness of his redemptive purposes. Brothers and sisters, Paul says in verse one, chapter 10, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Talking about his Jewish kinsmen, knowing that the, that the overwhelming majority of them have rejected Christ. For I testify about them that, that they have a zeal for God and Paul is one of their Jewish kinsmen, but Paul understood zeal. Paul says over in Philippians, no one was more zealous of their Judaism than was Paul. Listen, these people don't lack for zeal regarding the things of God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They're on the wrong track. Enlightenment is the same word that that is used here. The first time Paul uses this is back in chapter one in association with the Gentile mindset that has no regard for the things of God. He's saying my own kinsmen, the Jewish people, listen, they have a zeal for the things of God. They're just on the wrong track. And here's the summation of what is wrong. For For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That's it in a nutshell. The number one problem with Israel is that they have rejected all of the theological assertions made regarding Jesus Christ that have already been made in the first eight chapters of Romans and now not pursuing and rejecting the righteousness of God, the justice of God, being made right with God. Now then, having rejected that, now they, now they are pursuing a righteousness of their own. How many of us work with people? How many of us interact with people on a daily basis that we know or seeking after a righteousness of their own. Whenever we have opportunity to talk about our faith and we talk about our relationship with Jesus Christ, you know, we have don't you have people all the time that say, oh, well, you know, I'm spiritual too, but I, I've just come to a different place than you seeking a righteousness of their own. See, you and I are a correcting presence it's the recognition in our world that there are people seeking after wholeness and wellness and completeness. There, there, there are people around us that have a sense of the transcendent, that, that something is over them, that is out there, that, that is above them and over them, but they have not yet have it, had it defined in the person of Jesus Christ. Don't ever think that people just aren't interested. Read it. Recent book entitled "The Gospel of the Gospel of Wellness," Rene Raphael. But one of the things the author points out in this book is that just 20 years ago in this country, just 20 years ago, seven, over 70 percent of our population held membership in churches, synagogues or mosques, over 70 percent of the American population. Today, that is less than 50 percent. Now, intuitively, you might think, well, people just aren't interested in in spiritual things anymore. Nothing could be further from the truth because in those those same two decades of, of decline in membership, in churches, synagogues, in mosques, there has been a corresponding increase in what this author referred to in the wellness industry, this subsection of the wellness industry that she refers to as mystical services. People interested in things like tarot cards, psychic readings, astrology. We are in a world that people are searching and they are going down every wrong road. My son called me a couple of weeks ago. He said, Dad, you're not going to believe what happened. I was talking to this guy at lunch one day. At talking to the guy today at lunch. And he said, he was asking me what I was going to do tonight after work. It was a Wednesday. And he said, I have my, I have a small group Bible study. And the guy said a Bible study. What do you do at a Bible study? He said, do you ever run into anybody like that? That, that, that's never been to this guy had never been to church. He didn't know anything about about the Bible study, what that. He said, you know, I I just tried to explain to him about a group of guys getting together and and studying the scriptures." And he said, "I, I may as well have been talking to a wall. He was clueless to what I was talking about. I said, Hunter, as shocked as you are by that, I said, I- I'm shocked this first time you've ever run into that. I said, you know, the majority of people that I deal with during the week that I talk to, they have that kind of background. They, uh, they, it's a post-church culture. It's a post-Christian culture to the point that, that for me, I'm more shocked when, I'm, when I run into somebody that was raised in church. That is familiar with the language of the faith. I said, because most of my conversations, I'm trying to talk to them in ways that they can understand that are not in keeping with the language of Zion. You know, we have a language of Zion. I don't know if you realize it here in the church, but but we use churchy language. You know, if you're a Christian long enough and you're raised in church, you kind of pick up this churchy vocabulary. And I can tell you as a late comer into the life of faith, never walking inside a church till I was 21, one of the things that always turned me off about Christians was their churchy language. Because it was always like they were some Martians from a different planet. Real people don't talk like that. And so it it was always, it was always, and if you don't, if you're not guarded, if you're not aware, you can fall into this kind of churchy language that when you engage and you converse with people on a daily basis, and if you just fall in and if you're talking about things of faith and you fall into that dialogue using your churchy vocabulary, the world doesn't get it. The world doesn't get it. It's like Venus and Mars. But we are in a world where people are searching for something and we have to be ready to give an explanation, to give an account for the hope that is within us. When you and I engage, Ben, that's why we talk about being on mission where our feet are, Being on mission where your feet are isn't fulfilled by signing up for trips, different events, different programs. That's not what I'm talking about. When we talk about being on mission where your feet are, that your mission field is where your feet are, it's a sense of readiness in wherever I am to give an account of my faith. Because inevitably it comes up in conversations, classmates, coworkers, wherever, to talk about our faith. And when they start talking about spiritual things, it's a time for us to offer a corrective word with love, affection, concern, to offer a correcting word about the person of Jesus Christ. The one who is the fulfillment of the law for Christ, verse four, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Could you imagine the virologist Jonas Salk, founder of the Salk vaccine, polio vaccine. Could you imagine Jonas Salk saying after he had discovered this polio vaccine, man, I'm so glad I found this. Now then me and my family are safe. I don't have to worry about us anymore. Could you imagine Jennifer Doudna, uh, uh, biochemist? who's on the leading edge, front edge, front researcher, front lines researcher of, of messenger RNA, mRNA research, which is the, which is the foundation of, of, of the COVID vaccine. Could you imagine Jennifer Doudna saying, boy, I'm glad, I'm glad we have this, me and my family, we don't have to worry about COVID anymore. No, what they have and what they've experienced, what they've discovered, There was an urgency to share with everyone. That's why we are on mission to be a corrective presence of what it means to be right with God. Secondly, you and I are the articulation. This is why we are on mission. We are the articulation of salvation's universal availability. You and I, we are the articulation, the verbal, oral expression. We are the articulation of salvation's universal availability. Paul says in verse 5, for Moses writes of the righteousness that is based on the law. He's, he's writing of Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. Again, there's 40, 40 Old Testament verses used in chapters 9, 10, and 11. There's an assumption that you and I know these things. For Moses writes of the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who performs them will live by them. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. And now Paul is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will go up into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching, that is speaking, this isn't just about me up here. This is about us, our our verbalizing our our faith. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Well, let's pause there for a minute because what Paul has done is we see that he has introduced here two different kinds of righteousness. Now he's introduced, as we've seen, a righteousness based upon Leviticus, a righteousness that comes from the law. And then from Deuteronomy chapter 30, there is this righteousness that that comes from faith. Now understand the difference. This righteousness that comes from the law. it, It demands absolute obedience. Without equivocation, absolute obedience. That's why it leads only to sin and death. The only one that fulfilled this was the one true Israelite, the one faithful Jew, the one faithful Israelite, Christ Jesus. But the other that Paul is citing from Deuteronomy 30, and remember what Paul is saying to the, Jew, to the Jewish people is this has always been in front of you. This salvation that is by God's grace that is through faith, this has always been the way of God. This isn't like throwing out the covenant of Abraham and say, okay, all that really matters is from Jesus going forward. This has always been in front of you. And so he says regarding this righteousness that, that is accomplished by, by faith, that it is something close to you. That's what he means here when he says the word is near you. You don't, you don't have to go up to heaven. You don't have to go out and find a search party to find this, this righteousness that, that comes by faith. You don't have to go down into the abyss. Listen, the one that brings righteousness has always, has already been, has already been resurrected. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to go chasing down every spiritual road, searching for this righteousness that comes by faith. It is incarnate. It has come to you, Paul would say to the Jewish people. It is present with us. We hear it in the preaching and in the teaching of the gospel. But here's what what is most important for us. When we talk about why we are on mission, that we are the articulation of salvation, of salvation's universal availability, the implication of what Paul has said here up to verse eight, here's the implication. That is that, that what we preach, what you and I speak, when we talk about the things of God, when you and I are on mission, where our feet are, and we have opportunity to engage with our friends, neighbors, coworkers, incidental encounters with people, when these opportunities come up and we have opportunity to speak of Christ, to offer correction of where our spiritual journey led, my search for meaning and purpose in life, What we have to appreciate is that what we say, what we speak, when we speak of the gospel, it is is within the reach of anyone who hears it. There is power in your testimony. There is power in your words whenever you speak of, of the things of God. When we speak of the things of God, we are rehearsing the mighty acts of God for others to hear. And as those around us, not just the one to whom we speak, but when others around us hear us speaking of our our testimony and our faith, we are making it available. We are making it within the reach of anyone. So that verse nine, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, Heart is the origin place of a saving faith. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes. That's where faith is birthed, is in the the human heart. It's not in the mind. In my own testimony, I say, you know, I I believed a great many things regarding God. I, I believed everything regarding the person of Jesus Christ. Intellectually, I just never took it to heart. If you had asked me in my pre-conversion days in my unregenerate state, if you, had, if you had asked me even as a pagan when I was in high school and middle school, Bobby, do you, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God? I'd say, yeah, I believe he is. Do you believe he died on a cross? Do you believe this man, Jesus, lived 2,000 years ago? Yeah, I believe that. Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins? Yeah, I believed it even in my unregenerate state, even as a reprobate, you could not out-biblicize me. I believed intellectually everything that a Christian believed regarding the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe even more so after I got to know some Christians. You are not gonna out-biblicize me. But I was intentional and deliberate even though I knew those things intellectually. I was gonna be my own Lord I want to do what I want to do. I never took it to heart until I was 21. And then what I knew intellectually, faith was birthed in my heart. And when faith was birthed in my my heart, then I confessed with my mouth. And And this confession, Jesus is Lord. Listen, for Paul's audience, there, there, was, there was some significant political um, provocative language in that because when I as a Christian in Paul's day, if I, if I dare to confess Jesus is Lord, what I'm saying is that Caesar is not Lord. We would do well to hear that church in America today. To say Jesus is Lord, by default, I'm acknowledging that Caesar is not Lord which every Roman citizen was required to say in that day, Caesar is Lord. But when I say Jesus is Lord, I'm saying Caesar is not Lord. And we would do well as the church to continue to hold forth strictly and uniquely that Jesus is Lord. That our hope as a people of God does not ride on the backs of elephants and donkeys. We do not look to partisan politics for our hope. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And so you and I are the ones that God desires to use to speak in matters of faith, to speak in language of Jesus's lordship in the hopes that it might reach those who hear it. For everyone, he says in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, quoting Joel 2.32, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You and I are called to be an articulating people. This great salvation that God has made available is available to anyone and everyone, barbarian, Jew, Greek, Gentiles, and as we articulate, as we speak, we have to get past this, this silence, this gagging of ourselves when it comes to speaking of matters of faith. And unfortunately, we have all these little cliches that we hide behind in, our, in the tradition of, of the church in the West. We, uh, we say things like, uh, you've all heard it before. We, what, what is it? We, oh, I'd rather, I'd rather see a sermon any day than hear one at 1155, you may be thinking that too. <laughs> I'd rather hear a sermon than hear, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. And it is important that we live our faith, it, but it's kind of like saying which, which wing on an airplane is most important, the left wing or the right wing? Well, they're both important. But to just lift my faith and never speak of it says too much about me and too little about the Savior. We have to understand the power and the influence that has been entrusted to us to articulate in ways that are understandable with clarity all we have to do is tell our story and there is power and influence in that as people hear it and have opportunity to respond a final thing of why we're on mission is that there are implications there are implications for both hearers for both heralds and hearers and paul captures that here in verse 14 through the end of this chapter He has four series of rhetorical questions. All begin with the word how. Four quick succeeding rhetorical questions. Staging these to refute any excuses that Israel might have for having rejected the Christ. How then are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And it's someone who shares. This isn't, this isn't my, just my obligation. It, it is a shared obligation to preach and to speak, to verbalize. But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of, bring good, news of good things. Now, Paul, what he does here, he does a little interesting play here. He's He's cited there, talking about how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. He's citing Isaiah 52, 7, but but he's he's omitted some of the phrase from Isaiah 52, 7. He's he's omitted the phrases, upon the mountains, who announces peace and saying to Zion, your God, rise. And what Paul is doing, the reason he has removed those particular faces faith phrases is that he is removing any notion that the good news of the gospel was intended only to be proclaimed on the mountain of Zion to the nation of Israel. That this salvation, this proclamation, this good news is for anyone and everyone who would listen. So faith comes from hearing verse 17 and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? On the contrary, Paul says, quoting Psalm 19, four, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of, of the world. He's saying they're without excuse, Israel has is heard. As we've seen in the gospels, the, the gospel, the good news, the message of Christ, it, it came to the Jews first. Oh, they've had ample opportunity. Saying you haven't heard the gospel yet is, is no excuse. But I say, in verse nineteen, another excuse, but, but I say, Surely Israel did not know, did they? Again, borrowing from the Old Testament, he quotes Moses, who says in Deuteronomy thirty two, thirty-one, I will make you jealous with those who are not who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will anger you. In other words, he's saying to those Jews that would protest, Well well, you know, we we didn't really here, he's saying, pagan nations heard and they responded. Those Gentile nations that, that you've had nothing to do with, those Gentile nations that you have disregarded, the people that you disregard in, in everyday life, that you think they wouldn't be interested in the gospel, they've responded. They've heard the good news. And Isaiah is very bold and says, verse 20, Isaiah 65, 1 I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, I've spread out my hands and all day long, I've spread out my hands all day long to a disobedient and obstinate people, Isaiah 65, 2. I hope you noticed it in that reading of that extended passage. I sense, and this, this could be my own guilty conscience sensing this and picking up on this, that there is, a, is that there is a shift of burden from the hearers of the gospel. Those who hear it like the children of Israel who rejected it. And now only a remnant is responding, as we saw last week, and we will see next week. But there is a shift from the burden of those who have heard the gospel to those who are to speak of the gospel. The responsibility that is ours, each one to be heralds that the greater responsibility rests not so much on hearing, but the greater responsibility is for the speaker, for the heralds, for we who are called on a mission to articulate what God has done for the world through Christ Jesus. That's why we're on mission. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we desperately need to be awakened from a kind of faith that is insular in nature, that is secure, that is self-serving, a religion that is concerned with what happens behind stained glass. We need to be awakened to the shortfall of a a faith expression that is all too comfortable sitting on a padded pew in an environmentally comfortable room while talking about great concern for the lostness of the world. Awaken our hearts, awaken our spirits, O Lord, that we are the heralds of the gospel. We are the messengers of good news. We are the presence of Christ in this world that others might be drawn to you, that we would embrace the mission that is ours. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our...